Morning, Village Church. Again, I do want to say a happy Father's Day to all the fathers this morning. Um, I've already greeted a bunch of great fathers this morning. And one of the great things about the Village Church is it's filled with great fathers. Um, it's filled with great men and it's filled with great fathers. A couple of years ago, um, I remember there was a guy on our men's advance, so it might have been a few years ago, because it's been a few years, shameless plug for our men's advance coming up this fall. There was a guy in the men's advance that came up to me one night, we were there, and he said, hey, Pastor Matt, can I talk with you? And I said, yeah, and we kind of went off to the side, and he said, you know, I've been around the village church for a little while now, and what I've realized is it's kind of not cool to be a bad husband at the village church. And I said, yeah, no, it's not, it's not, not cool. And he said, it's, it's not cool to be a bad dad at the Village Church. And I said, yeah, no, it's not, it's not, not cool. And uh, we went on and kind of had this conversation, but what we was communicating is, you know, sometimes it's, it's kind of hard for me because I feel like I'm not the best husband, I'm not the best dad, but I'm surrounded by all these great husbands and fathers. You know? And so if that's you this morning, I just want to say you're in a great place because the Village Church is filled with good and godly men who are not perfect. There's only one perfect father, amen? And we know who that is. But by God's grace, this church is filled with good men, it's filled with good husbands, it's filled with good fathers. And, um, and they'd love to come alongside you. And so um, if you uh, are in a place where you feel like, you know, I don't, really have, I don't really have a great example of what it was to be a good husband or to be a good father, um, you are in a good place. And uh, there's a lot of good and godly men who'd love to come alongside you and invite you in, all right? So happy Father's Day to all you men. Uh, can we just say happy Father's Day to the guys this morning, huh? Yeah? All right. So I got a question for all of you, not just the fathers, not just the men, but for everyone here this morning. The question is this, are you happy? Are you happy? Like are you, are you genuinely, are you deeply, are you consistently, are you noticeably happy? Pre-pandemic, there was a, a poll by the American, uh, by the Harris poll, there was a Harris poll. It was on the American Happiness Index. It was actually the index for these things. They found that 33% of Americans say they are happy in this deep way. So our country, it, it measures these things. How happy are the people in our country? Deeply, genuinely, consistently, noticeably happy. One in three Americans is, and that's odd because our country is literally built around the idea of the pursuit of life, liberty, and what? And the pursuit of happiness. So in a country that affords us all these freedoms to literally do whatever we want within reason to pursue our happiness, only one in three Americans are actually happy. And I think this is a, a good question, not just for the average American, I think this is a good question for Christians. And so as a room that's filled with, I think, probably mostly Christians this morning, let me ask you, are you happy? I wonder if there was a Christian happiness index, what percentage we'd find. If I asked you, are you happy in your relationship with God? Are you noticeably and genuinely and deeply happy in your relationship with God? Are you happy as a Christian? Are you happy, deeply happy in your life as a Christian? What would the index score be? Matter of fact, I wanna just give you um, a little test right now. On a scale of one to five, this is an easy test, on a scale of one to five, and you can include point fives, okay? I don't want anyone at the end saying, I didn't know what to score myself because I didn't know if I could do a point five. You can do a point five, okay? So on a scale of one to five, including point fives, how happy are you in your life as a Christian? Just do it in your mind really quickly. How happy are you in your life as a Christian? I see some students that are into calculus doing their thing. No, just this is easy, okay? How happy are you? 
Now, some of you just, some of you said five, and you said it quickly, and I just want to tell you, really? <laughs> really? You're the person on all the polls that's just like, five, 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 five. How was our service? Five. How was your experience? Five, five, five. You just did it quickly. Please don't do that again. Okay, so like, but maybe you are deeply happy in your relationship with God, and so you're like, yeah, I'm a four. Or I'm like a four and a half, you know, or something like that. I think that's fantastic. Some of you, you said three. Actually, statistically, most of you will have said three, and the reason is, is you can't decide. You can't decide if you are actually happy in your relationship with God or you're not. And you know what? If you can't decide, you decided. Right? M most people, many even professing Christians might even say, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ha happy in my relationship with God. And what that means is you actually, you do know. You're not as happy in your life with Christ as you want to be, as you believe you ought to be. Do you think this is a relevant topic this morning? You know, the first time that Jesus sits down to teach his disciples about something in a lengthy form, do you know what he teaches them about? He teaches them about how to find their delight and their happiness in and through him. This is what he teaches them about. And this is why we're talking about this this morning, because this is what Jesus first talked about with his disciples when he talked with them at length. Two weeks ago we said in this series, we are his, that we are who we are because he is who he is. And a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that Jesus brought glory to God. And so we bring glory to God. Last week Pastor David reminded us that Jesus made disciples. And so we make disciples. And the question this morning is, what kind of disciples do we make? What kind of disciples does Jesus want us to make? Jesus delighted in God, and so we delight in God. That's why we say the villagers exist to glorify God by growing and multiplying disciples who are first delighting in Jesus. We want to be a church filled with people that are delighting in Jesus because we believe that's what Jesus wants. The first place Jesus talked about this idea of delighting in God, we call it the Beatitudes. And so let me just paint the picture of the setting if you don't know it. Many of you, most of you do, but let me remind you, Jesus has called his first disciples. He has preached his first mini-sermons. We call those homilies these days. He's done his first miracles. It's the first time that crowds and masses of people are gathering around him, so many so that they can't be numbered. It's a first for a lot of things. And it's the first time Jesus sits down to talk to his disciples at length about, listen, anything. Jesus could tell them about anything. Jesus could talk to them about anything. The list is long, and yet this is the thing that Jesus talks with them about. Jesus is going to tell them eight things about delighting in him. The word literally means blessed or happy or delighted. This is where this comes from. Again, we are who we are because he is who he is. And the first four tell us something about how the life this life of delighting in God begins, and the last four tells us something about what this life of delighting in God looks like. And we see it starting in verse 1 where it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountaintop, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. See, this is where it's going to be a lengthy sermon now, saying the first thing he said, Blessed, is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts by talking to his disciples about the happy life that can only be found in him. But did you catch this? He also wants the crowds to hear and listen. 
And so he wants to invite them in. And I just want to say, if you're a guest with us this morning and someone invited you for this morning or on Father's Day or you just found your way in, you're going to hear some things this morning about the heart of Jesus toward his disciples and their happiness in him. And you're going to be in an earshot. <laughs> I talk loud sometimes, more than an earshot. And you're going to enter into this conversation with Jesus and his disciples. And, and I hope and we hope that it encourages you and it helps inform you about what Jesus wants for you and from you. I could tell you this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, that I believe that Jesus is as concerned for your happiness as he is your obedience. You might say, oh, that's great because everyone's telling me all God wants for me to be is happy. No, no, that's not what I said. I said he is as concerned about your happiness as your obedience, that those two things are inextricably connected, that the life that's lived in obedience toward Jesus is the happiest life that you can live. Those things are together, and as Christians, that, that's what we believe. But Jesus begins in a place we might not expect when he's talking about happiness and, and this, life, this life of delighting in God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you want to be blessed, if you want to be happy, if you want to be delighted, you have to be poor in spirit. And here I think we learned the first lesson Jesus wants us to see this morning is that delighting in Jesus begins with the recognition that we can't find our deepest delight outside of Jesus. This is where this begins, with the recognition that we cannot find our deepest delight outside of him. You see, Jesus tells his disciples that they are spiritual beings and that because of that, true happiness true delight begins in a spiritual place but we are all left to ourselves naturally Jesus says spiritual paupers and that's why Jesus said happy are you if you're in that place recognizing your spiritual poverty you see deep happiness begins with the recognition and confession that we have no ability to create true and deep happiness apart from God that's pretty countercultural from what the American happiness index might measure Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor and a theologian. He wrote lots of books. I like his writing. He said this, being poor in spirit means complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It's nothing that we can do in ourselves. And again, this teaching is radically different than the typical way people seek happiness through self-reliance or self-confidence or through their own self-expression or we can call it self-actualization today it's called self-identification you can just identify as whatever you want and do whatever you want and that's where you'll find your happiness thinking that we can find happiness by ourselves and actually the, the humanism of our culture tells us we can find happiness in ourselves we can find deep delight in ourselves with a 33% happiness index, <laughs> wouldn't you say that maybe something radically different in our approach to happiness might be a good thing? See, Jesus knows this. What Jesus is saying that is that we've proven time and time again that we can't find happiness in ourselves, and we can't ha find happiness by ourselves. And the proofs and the statistics and the reality is we were never created to find our deepest delight in those things. We were never meant to find our deepest delight in anything outside of him. Question this morning, does your delight in Jesus begin with the recognition that nothing and no one apart from Jesus can give you the kind of delight, the kind of deep happiness 
that you are looking for. See, when teaching about this, Jesus begins in a place we wouldn't expect him to begin, and it might not feel all that happy, and Jesus continues down this unexpected road with one more unexpected statement when he says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you want to be happy in your relationship with God, deeply happy, if you want to delight in your relationship with God, there's some mourning that comes first, Jesus says. And I think the second thing we learn here this morning is that delighting in Jesus begins by grieving the ways we've tried to find our deepest delight outside of him. That there has to be a grieving process, that we have all tried to find our deepest delight in things and in people and in relationships, things outside of him. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is you, you have to grieve that before you can enjoy relationship with God the way that God intended you to. See, we've all tried to find our deepest delight in things like success and significance and money and possessions, all the things that preachers usually mention. But let me mention a couple other, like margin. Like, isn't it great when you're just like, oh, this feels so great. I have a day off. I have margin. Like, we find our deepest delight in even things like that or in relationships or philanthropy or things that are good things we tend to seek out to find our deepest place of delight. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones that should be comforted or will be comforted. And I thought about this idea of mourning over these things, and I thought about this idea of grief and mourning. And I'm not a psychologist, but I think there are five stages of grief. And if you're a psychologist, you can correct me. Not now, but maybe helpfully later. I think this is it. Um, The first stage is denial. In terms of what we're talking about this morning, like in the back of your mind, some of you could be thinking, you know, I, don't, I haven't done this. I have not tried to find my deepest delight outside of Jesus. Some of you, some of us, are just, we're still in denial because we haven't grieved this yet. The second step is anger. And that's where you say, look, no, this is not fair. This is not fair that we can't find our deepest delight anywhere outside of Jesus. It's not fair. And then we get kind of upset about that. The third step is bargaining. That's where we say something like, you know, If you let me delight in this other thing as much as you, I promise then I will actually delight in you as much as that thing. Like, we bargain with God. No, I want to keep, I want to keep my deep delight in this thing, but I also want to delight in you, and I think I can do that. Like, can we do that together? I think most of us are probably somewhere like that. The next step is uh, confession. It's actually depression. But I don't think this is depression in the Christian sense. And so I'm just going to say confession because this is the place where we actually confess, like, yeah, like, that's not going to work. I'm realizing that actually this is the place where I find my deepest delight, and I'm, there's nowhere else I can go. And lastly, there's acceptance, which maybe for our purposes this morning might say something like, you know, I know I've tried to find my deepest delight outside of Jesus, and I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm just accepting the reality that, yeah, like I can only find my deepest delight in and through Him. And Most people don't go through grieving processes in the natural things of life. And guess what? Most people don't do that in the spiritual life either. And so we're not experiencing the delight that we have, that that we can have in Jesus, because we've not grieved the reality that we have sought that deepest delight outside of him. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we don't first mourn, we won't be truly comforted. But when we do mourn this stuff, we will be comforted, which literally means to call to one side. 
saying Jesus is calling us to his side. He wants to be close to us. He wants to draw us near. If we don't mourn over the attempts to find our deepest happiness in other things and in other people, we'll never know the simple yet satisfying delight of Jesus calling us to his side. Think about some of the most satisfying moments in your life, and it's usually, I'm assuming, it's when someone you love is, is close to you, is next to you, and you're just enjoying their presence. Sometimes in a difficult moment, just the simple yet satisfying delight of life through relationship. That's what Jesus wants for us. Have you walked through these spiritual grieving processes? If you're a Christian, I'm assuming the answer is yes. Have you accepted the reality that, that there's nowhere else you can go, there's nowhere else you should go for your deepest delight outside of him? These first two steps down the road of delight, they lead naturally to a third step. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek literally means gentle or mild or humble. And here, after we've learned these first two lessons, I think there's a third one, and it's this, that delighting in Jesus begins with the humility that knows we can't find our delight outside of Jesus. See, when we realize, yeah, we can't find it outside of him, and when we grieve that, we mourn that, we confess that, we realize, yeah, we've done these things, that's a humbling thing, is it not? That humbles us in a way. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And my sense is, I don't, I don't know, but that Jesus would have been thinking about something like Psalm 37, 11, because when Jesus is preaching, he's preaching truths out of Scripture. And these are some of the Old Testament truths. Psalm 37, 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land. You see the familiarity there? And delight themselves in the abundant in abundant peace. The land was connected to the promises of God for the people of God. Only those with a meek and a humble posture will be in a state where they're ready to actually, here it is, receive those promises. Receive those promises. If, you, if, you, if, if you're, you're not going to believe that you can find your deepest delight only, only in and through Jesus unless you've realized that by experience, you, you can't find it elsewhere, you've grieved your opportunities and your attempts rather to do it, and then you're sitting now in this humble and meek posture, accepting that reality and ready to receive the promises of God for what it would mean to have a life of deep delight in Him. And that's where Jesus goes next. Because these first three Beatitudes, they don't feel very good, they don't feel very happy, but they have a very important purpose. They're priming the pump for the main point, the key to delighting in God. And so if we want to know the key this morning to delighting in God, I, I, I think here it is. I think it's in verse 6 where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They will be the ones who live a life of deep satisfaction in God and in their life with Him and in deep delight in God and their life with Him. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness in this passage, if you look at the language, has the focus on the object of the hunger and thirsting, which is righteousness. And we know that Jesus is sitting here and He's giving this sermon to them and He's 
basically saying in that he is the righteousness of God personified. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is saying it as righteousness of God in human flesh. The hunger and thirsting for righteousness is a hunger and thirsting for Jesus himself, which is the key lesson, I believe, in these ideas. And it's lesson four, that delighting in Jesus is all about delighting in Jesus. Does that seem redundant? Not the things that we get from Jesus. Delighting in Jesus, novel concept, is all about delighting in Jesus. In him. And in him alone. And in our relationship to him and with him. And the relationship we have with God through him. And all the things that he does in and through our lives because of this relationship is wonderful and it's amazing. But the key to finding happiness and true deep delight in our relationship with God is finding it in him. And not the things that come out of that relationship with him. And if you know anyone that's delighted in God more than others in your life, you know that this is the truth. Like I can think of a couple of people that I know in my life who I can just point to and go, that person has deep, deep delight in God. And one of them was always singing songs because it just welled out of him all the time. Actually, both of them are singing songs. Maybe there's something to that. <laughs> there's this song that's in their heart that they have such a deep delight in God, they don't care. It just kind of exudes out of them. But knowing these men, they had a deep delight in God himself. Not the things that God gave them. He wants us to delight in the reality that he can give us those things and he wants us to enjoy all kinds of good things. The next chapter, chapter six, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to constantly be fretting about what you're gonna eat or drink or wear, where you're gonna live. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, seek Christ and as the righteousness of God personified and all of these things will be added unto you. And yes, as Christians, we should have the most joy and the most delight in our relationships, in our marriage, in our parenting of our children. We should be the happiest, most joyful parents there are. And we should have the happiest, most joyful kids, not the perfect ones, but they should be happy and joyful. Right? There are so many children in this church, and, and we do the baby dedications, and there's so many joyful children up here. And I say, you know why they're joyful kids? Because they have great parents. And it's true. Christians should be experiencing these things. We should have great delight in the way that we use our money and the things we get to spend it on and invest it in. We should enjoy great food and great drink and great times with our friends and our family and our loved ones. We should have deep joy and delight in the purposes that God has given us, the passions he's, he's given us deep in our hearts, like in living those things out. And the list goes on and on. We should be the people that have the most joy and delight in all of it. That's not ultimately what we're seeking. We're seeking him. And the key to delighting in Jesus is delighting in Jesus. The first four Beatitudes tell us how this life of delighting in Jesus begins, but the last four tell us what it looks like. And it looks like a lot of things, but these are the four things Jesus says it looks like. Look at verses seven to 11. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now these four descriptions are not four different people. There are four descriptions of the same person. The person that's finding their deep delight in God himself through the relationship with Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to start in the middle-ish with the sixth beatitude, the pure in heart, and kind of work my way out because I think the purity of heart is connected to and touches all of it. So verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You might be thinking to yourself right now, because my heart doesn't always feel all that pure all the time. And, and I know. So the, the purity of heart that we're talking about this morning is, is something a little different. The pure in heart here literally means a singular heart. A heart whose normal disposition is to delight in God and the things of God. And here I think we learn our fifth lesson this morning, if you're writing these down, is that disciples who delight in Jesus have a single-hearted devotion to Jesus. This is what this life looks like. We've seen how it begins. This is what it looks like. It looks like a single-hearted devotion to Him. And again, when, when Jesus is thinking about this kind of heart, I, I'm wondering if He's quoting something like Psalm 24. These ideas that He's preaching on are, are in His mind for sure, because He's talking about Old Testament ideas and Scripture, and he's bringing them forward. This is the Scripture he's teaching from, the Old Testament Scriptures. Psalm 24, 3 to 4, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And what does that person look like? Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Here the pure in heart is the heart that's not lifted up to an idol. It's the heart that's not trying to find its deepest delight in anyone or anything else. You know, there are some things in my life that I have deep delight in. And I find a lot of joy in. And, and this week, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> I had a crisis with one of those things. And like one of the questions that I'm asking in my mind because I, I got upset was like, is this thing an idolatrous thing? Like, is this an idol? And that's a good question for a Christian. Like when your happiness, when your joy, when your contentedness, when your attitude, you know, when your disposition changes radically, when, when something gets pressed on, a good question is, is that an idol? <laughs> and I came to the conclusion, I don't believe this thing's an idol. It is important to me. I don't believe it's an idol to me. But it's a good question for a Christian. Because we're not supposed to lift our soul up to something that's false. There's nothing else that we find our ultimate delight in, our deepest delight in outside of Him. This is what it means to be pure in heart. A person that's delighting in Jesus has a single-hearted focus toward Jesus. And these are the kinds of people that will see God because their life is centered on delighting in Him. And their hearts are bent toward Him. And their lives are saturated in Him. And so they're able to see him and truly delight in him. And this is what delighting in Jesus looks like. And these pure-hearted people who see God because their, their, their God-centered disposition and focus of their heart is on him, they also are people who are filled with mercy, which is probably one of the reasons we sang that fantastic song this morning, His Mercy is More. It's because when we see God, the first thing we should likely see is mercy. I mean... Moses was the man who 
most closely saw God face to face. I mean, he saw God more closely than any human being has ever seen him outside of us seeing God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Exodus 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. This is God's self-declaration about himself. This is who I am. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and embed, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first thing God says about himself is, I am merciful. And so it would make sense that... <laughs> that the people that are delighting in him would also be merciful, which is why Jesus likely says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the merciful. The delighted are the merciful. The people who have seen God and received the mercy of God will be the first and foremost themselves a merciful people because disciples who delight in Jesus display the mercy of Jesus because they've received the mercy of Jesus. And that's lesson number six this morning. The disciples who delight in Jesus display the mercy of Jesus because they've received the mercy of Jesus. We have received his mercy, and so we get to extend it to others. I say, well, what does mercy actually look like? The word that Jesus is using is a word that means active compassion. It's an active word. It means active compassion doing something for others. Being merciful is seeing the suffering of other people and having empathy for them and then doing whatever it takes to alleviate that suffering. There's an act of compassion. In the context of being happy and delighted in God, it's for us as Christians seeing other people who are very unhappy in their life. Although they've got all these facades that pretend like they are. Their Instagram sure shows that they're happy, but you know them and you know it doesn't match up. And our role as Christians is we've received mercy. We actually get to go now and extend the mercy of God. Do whatever we need to do to help that person to see that they find their ultimate happiness, their deepest delight in and through Jesus. To go care for that need in a way that helps them to see the goodness of God. That by God's grace, they might one day delight in God themselves. John Calvin said, the merciful are those who not only are prepared to put up with their own troubles, but who also take on other people's troubles. Why don't there seem to be more professing Christians extending this kind of mercy? I don't know. I think part of the answer to that question might be that there are many professing Christians who have essentially used Christianity as a moral system. If you use Christianity as a moral system, you become a hard person, not a soft person. Because you're, you're measuring yourself and how good you've done on the system against everyone else. And that makes you hard, not soft. That's called self-righteousness. Not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is hungering and thirsting for righteousness outside of yourself. A righteousness that can only be found in Christ. And so Jesus is saying hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you might be saying if you've lived that kind of life, no, I, I want to, to, to follow the rules. I, I get it. But th that's different than what Jesus is talking about. You're likely trying to, to, to build it up yourself. And if you've seen that happen, you become a hard person, not a soft person. It takes one to know one. I, I have been that person. Like in my early Christian life, I was a, I think I was a very self-righteous person. And I could be cold toward people that that were living certain ways, and I'd be like, well, it's your own fault, you know? And I had a self-righteousness. 
That's not the righteousness that's to be found in Christ. Merciful people extend mercy because they're softened, because they've received the mercy that comes from Christ. I think it might be one of the reasons why Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 twice, or Matthew uses Hosea 6.6 twice in his gospel account. For I desire steadfast love and mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I think Matthew's trying to remind his audience of disciples, as you're becoming disciples, this is not just about following the rules. It's about mercy. God doesn't want us to simply go through the motions. He wants our hearts to be changed by his mercy so that we'll be merciful to others. So those hearts that have been changed by God, that are pure in heart, that extend the mercy to others, they also want to see peace extended in the lives of those around them, which is verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, which is our second to last lesson this morning, which is this, that disciples who delight in Jesus display the peace of Jesus because they've received peace from Jesus. This word peacemaker literally means those who make complete or whole. And this is the role of Christians, the peacemakers, the ones that go into all the centers of life, into the home and into work and into their communities and into the church and into the world and who seek to bring the peace of God to those places because they've gotten peace with God through their profession of faith in Jesus and what he's done for them and they've been reconciled to God and they're now at peace with God and, and they are at peace with many things in many aspects of their life and so they could go out into many areas of life and seek to bring the peace that only God can bring in those things. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. There's something that's reflective of God in this. Theologian Theologian Leon, Leon Morris says it this way, there is something godlike in bringing peace to people and people to peace because we are created in God's image. And I just include this because, you know, on Father's Day, it seems appropriate. Like, this is the, one of the great ways we image God by, by bringing peace. You know, when a father brings peace to his home it, in an argument, it, it says something about the nature of who God is. And when fathers create discord, it says something different about who God is not. And, and it's just an interesting thing to think about on Father's Day that the, one of the greatest ways we can actually image who God the Father is, is by ushering peace into these places. By bringing peace and reconciliation, by making things whole in our families and in our communities and in our church and in our workplace, you know, and in the places that we go. And when we live a life like this, a life that's full of delight and joy in God, recognizing that we can't find our deepest delight outside of him, anywhere outside of him, and then that, and that produces a life that's, that's filled with a single-hearted devotion to Jesus and that is filled with mercy that gets extended in an active kind of way, that, that ushers in peace to those that were around. Something else comes along with that, and that's where we end our time this morning. There will be people that will get angry when they continue to search for a place to find their deep delight and they still can't find it, but they see you have found it and you're living it. And my, my, my opinion is, this is my, my opinion is, and my own thinking is that oftentimes Christian persecution doesn't come just because people hate us, although that will be true because Jesus said it's true. 
and what Jesus says is true. I think, I think oftentimes people in our context, they, they persecute Christians because they see Christians, some Christians living a kind of way that they, they want to live, but they can't live outside of him and without him. And when you live a life of deep joy and delight in God, and especially in the midst of hard things, other people can't deal with that well. And our disposition toward people like that, again, should be mercy. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for delighting in righteousness personified. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the sake of living their lives the way Jesus wants us to, and in and through that, having deep delight in the things of life. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last lesson this morning is this, that disciples who delight in Jesus delight in him even when they are persecuted for doing so. You know, there's, um, in our cultural context, this idea of delight and decrees, and I was gonna make a slide for this, but I think a lot of people have this idea about Christianity that it's just all about obeying the decrees, like obey the commands. Absolutely, we obey him because he's holy, amen? So like we want to be holy. The Bible even says, be holy for I am holy. So yes. But we also obey the commands of God because it's there we find our deepest delight in him and through him. And if you're not yet a Christian, I wanna tell you this this morning. And if you are a Christian and you've forgotten this, I wanna remind you, all of the commands of God are there because God wants to provide for us the absolute best that he intends for us and he wants to protect us from, listen to me, anything that is less than that. And if you're a father this morning, you get that. That the things that you do for your family, you do them because you wanna provide the ultimate and the best that your family could possibly have and nothing less than that. And the things that you tell them like, don't touch this, don't go there, don't do this, don't think about it that way. Think about it this way. No, this is not who you are. This is who you are. We don't act like that. We act like this. The reason you do that as a father is because you want your children to experience the best that, that's there for them, and you want to protect them from anything that's less than that best. And that's what God wants for us as a father. And so if you're not yet a Christian and you've seen people persecuting Christians for these things, or if you are a Christian and you've seen yourself receiving some persecution for these realities, this is, this is the intention behind it, and I want you to know that. God wants your good. God is holy, and he's perfect, and so we obey him. But God is good, and he wants our delight and our joy, and he wants it to come in and through him because he knows that's the only place it can ultimately come. I said Jesus is as interested in your happiness as he is in your obedience this is where this comes from when we obey him we get to enjoy all the blessings that that he wants for us all the things that he wants to provide for us they're all there all the things that he wants to protect us from they get they're, they're squeezed out and we get to love a life of extreme delight in Jesus and I, I bet you that the people that you know that live the life of most delight in God probably also really live real holy, 
lives, <laughs> you know? They obey Jesus. They obey him. You know, um, Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a life of perfect obedience to God. So it's no wonder that Jesus had this incredible joy and delight in his relationship with his Father because Jesus lived in that perfect obedience. This week in a growing leaders group that I'm leading with a bunch of men in our church, one of the guys that was there said, you know, this week as we were studying the atonement, I had this, I was reminded of this reality that, you know, the sinless life of Jesus is really important when we talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus because without the sinless life of Jesus, the substitutionary death of Jesus would, it, well, it wouldn't be what it is. And we said, yeah, you know, we started talking about this concept and this reality. And as a church, I want to remind you this morning that, that Jesus lived a life that we could never live, a perfect, perfectly sinless life, a life that perfectly delighted in God. And he lived that life on your behalf. That's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus experienced that. So when we look at Jesus, we see a life that is lived in perfect delight in God. But then Jesus went and died a death that you and I should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins, taking on the consequence for our sin all of those times that we do delight and find our deepest delight in anyone or anything other than himself. He's done both of those things. He's lived a life of perfect delight in God and he's taken your consequence for all the times that you don't do that. He lived a life that we, sh we could never live, a perfectly sinless life. He died the death that we should have died on the cross in our place for sins. And he rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise. Listen to me, a life that's now free to delight in him. A life that's now free. We, we don't have to, as Christians, be drawn into places where we find our deepest delight in other things and people. You don't have to do that anymore. Like you now, you're forgiven, you're free. You're empowered by God's Spirit. You're enabled now to live with a single-hearted devotion, increasingly so, to Jesus, and to find your deepest delight in Him. And I believe that's connected to the good news this morning, is that Jesus lived a life of perfect delight in God so that we could live lives that are progressively delighting in Him, so that our spiritual happiness index can continue to increase, so that you and I, by God's grace, can continue to find increasing delight in God until the day we see him face to face. Would you pray with me? This morning we thank you on Father's Day that you are the kind of father that is holy and good. You are holy and so you require our obedience you require and desire our obedience because you are holy and you desire and you want our delight and our joy because you are good. And we thank you this morning that you are not holy or good. You are holy and good and that you are good and holy and that you want us to find our deepest delight in you. This morning we pause and we confess that we have sought to find our deepest delight in places and in people other than you. And this morning we pause and we confess this. And we ask that you forgive us. 
and we ask that you help us, that you would come alongside us. Blessed are the, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lord, would you come alongside and comfort us this morning? Would you enable us? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Would you satisfy us in you and in you alone, Jesus? And so this morning we sing to you, and we sing to you alone, and we do it in your name and for your sake.